You're listening to the Sermon Podcast of Covenant Baptist Church in Arden, North Carolina. To learn more about us, visit covbap.org. Now, today's sermon. Amen. So Psalm 26, hopefully you've made your way there. I'm going to begin our time by reading uh, God's Word for us. Uh, the, the Psalm 26 for our consideration this morning. This is a Psalm of David. Vindicate me, O Lord, for I have walked in my integrity and I have trusted in the Lord without wavering. Prove me, O Lord, and try me. Test my heart and my mind. For your steadfast love is before my eyes and I walk in your faithfulness. I do not sit with men of falsehood, nor do I consort with hypocrites. I hate the assembly of evildoers, and I will not sit with the wicked. I wash my hands in innocence, and I go around your altar, O Lord, proclaiming thanksgiving aloud and telling of all your wondrous deeds. O Lord, I love the inhabitation, the habitation of your house and the place where your glory dwells. Do not sweep my soul away with the sinners, nor my life with the bloodthirsty men, in whose hands are evil devices and whose right hands are full of bribes. But as for me, I shall walk in my integrity. Redeem me and be gracious to me. My foot stands on level ground. In the great assembly, I will bless the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Saints, Sometimes as we hear a psalm like that, we think to ourselves, I don't know if I can pray that. It just sounds hard to pray. It's a lot of walking in integrity and avoiding evil. And I don't know that I've got enough of that going on in my life to really comfortably pray a prayer like this. Because we know, right, that we haven't had perfect integrity. We've all prayed I believe, help my unbelief. So I don't know how in the world I could pray that I've trusted in the Lord without wavering. We get a little squirmy because we read words like this and we have the tendency to look at ourselves. That's our number one problem. We also hear these words and we get squirmy and we wonder, is the way I live enough? Am I living well enough? Am I being obedient enough? Am I trusting God Enough? Am I doing enough? Is there enough fruit in my life to pray words like these? Am I worshiping God enough to pray words like these? Enough for what? Enough for what, saints? Well, maybe it would be enough um, that we might look at our life and find something that would assure us that we have God's favor. Maybe that's what we're thinking. Maybe it's that we're going to look at our lives, and if we find enough obedience and fruit, we're going to feel more sure that God does hear our prayers and that he's not just passive-aggressive with us as he knows the sinfulness of our heart, and he's just putting up with us because he's our father. Maybe we'll find enough that that's really not true. Well, saints, the psalmist asked God to prove him and to try him and to know him. That's a scary thing to pray before the holy God of the universe. To try, hey, the Lord, try me. 
the one who knows all of the secrets of our hearts, the very places that you and I with our very best friends are still ashamed to talk about, the Lord is there. David seems comfortable enough to ask that God to get in those places and show him those parts of himself and still pray words like these. Maybe you're confused. Well, before jumping into our psalm, let me make a few more comments. And I hope that I'm just enticing your appetite toward what's really in the songbook of our Lord Jesus, the Psalms. Well, our prayers are never alone, saints. We never pray on our own, nor do our words go up alone to the throne of God. One of our favorites around here, Chad Bird, he says, Jesus's voice is mixed with ours. And Jesus takes those words to the throne of grace. And so they're heard as our prayers and they're heard as Jesus's prayers. Because of his righteousness, the Lord Jesus, because of his atonement, our prayers are cleansed, our lives are cleansed, they're sanctified, and they are received as spiritual sacrifices before the throne of grace. The throne of grace. And so in these ways, we never pray alone. And all of our gaps and all of our weaknesses, they're covered and they're sanctified. And with that, I'd like to begin looking directly at Psalm 26. I see sort of three parts in Psalm 26 in this prayer. David asks for vindication and for sanctification. That's verses 1 to 2. And then I think David asks, he, he, he's, he's praying about worship over wickedness. He sort of offers these thoughts of worship over wickedness. Not like worship versus wickedness. That Maybe that's a better way to describe that. That's verses 3 through 8. And then our last section, verses 9 through 12, there's sort of this plea for exoneration, acquittal, and then of course redemption is what we see in this psalm. And so I hope to show you all of this, what's going on that David would pray these sorts of words. I want to summarize that for us. And then I have a few points of reflection for our time this morning. And so jumping right in to Psalm 26, verses 1 and 2, vindication and sanctification. You have your eyes on the text, and you can see he asks, vindicate me, O Lord. Judge me. Prove me if, if I be wrong. Maybe I'm, I don't have the right thoughts here. Maybe I'm blind. But there's a particular situation that David's enemies, had, they seem to have accused him of, of some sort of uh, guilt. And he's saying, I think I'm clean of this guilt. So he takes his slander not upon his own hands and takes his vengeance on his enemies. He takes his slander to the Lord. And he says, Lord, you vindicate me. You know my heart. I think I'm uh, free of guilt in this area that my enemies charge me with. So vindicate me, oh Lord. Why would he ask? Well, like I said, it seems like someone has, has specifically accused him of something. And these enemies are ones who have set themselves up against God. And so David prays, hey, I think I've walked in integrity in this area. We see that I've walked in my integrity. But he also says that he's trusted in the Lord without wavering. So because of those two things, he says, Lord, so judge my life. I've walked in integrity in this area, and I'm trusting in you. Vindicate me. Well, and hint that he's not saying he's perfectly sinless. He's asking the Lord to try him and test him and prove him. In verse 2, that is the same language of gold being refined or purified. So he knows that he's not guiltless. 
or sinless. He's he's particularly talking in this in this uh, specific area, but he says, "Lord, I have walked in my integrity in this area, and I have trusted in you. So I think that you should vindicate me, you know, free my soul from feeling any shame or guilt. But if not, test me, prove me, sanctify me, show me, draw it out of me, purify me." David says. And so that leads us to this sort of second piece, which we have the the vindication and then the prayer for sanctification. But what would motivate such an unswerving, uh, unswerving, unbuckling devotion to the Lord that would ask David to turn up the heat on his imperfections? Why would David be so dedicated to that type of prayer? Part two of our psalm, verses three through eight. Because he worships the Lord. He worships the Lord and he hates wickedness. We see this in verse verse 3. Why would he pray such a prayer? Because the steadfast love of the Lord is before his eyes. And he's going to walk not in his faithfulness, not in David's truth, not in the world's truth, but because you, O God, have called me out of the darkness and you've given me your covenant and your oath sealed by the blood that will be represented in the sacrificial system because you've promised me a kingdom and one who would sit on an everla- in that everlasting kingdom on an everlasting throne and we would be your people and you would be your God. Because of that, because your steadfast love is before me, I'm not going to walk according to the world. I'm not going to walk according to my desire. I'm going to walk according to your truth. Your faithfulness is the word. The word is, I'm going to walk in your stability. I've got none, David says. There's a, clear, there's a clear thing throughout this whole thing that David is not relying on his faithfulness. But his faithfulness is dependent on the Lord's stability. And he's stable, saints. So then he says, I... Then he, so, so the steadfast love of the Lord is before his eyes. But then he talks about the company that he doesn't keep. The company that he doesn't keep. I do not sit with men of falsehood nor consort with hypocrites, no double-minded men. Uh, I hate the assembly of evildoers when they get together to set themselves up against the truth. And I don't sit with the wicked. And he says later in verse 7, uh, or uh, verse uh, 9, that they are sinners and they are a bloodthirsty man, in verse 10, whose deeds are evil. It sounds a lot like Psalm 1. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is on the law of the Lord. Day and night he meditates on it. Your steadfast love is before my eyes. I do not. Walk and live with the wicked. Worship versus wickedness. Worship over wickedness. So David, far from fixing uh, his eyes on his enemies and his sufferings and the slander that is coming upon him, his eyes are on the loving kindness of the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping Steadfast loves for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sins, but who will by no means clear the guilty? This is the first description that God gives himself. David is clinging to this. This is before his eyes, all of his days. The God who has this habit 
of mysteriously allowing the worst to come upon his people and then creatively bringing out the best. This is the habit that we kind of track in the scriptures. The Lord picks the smallest and the weakest, and he brings about a kingdom where sin and Satan and death and nor anything in heaven or on earth could separate us from his love. And so David walks in God's truth. Verses 4 and 5 of Psalm 26. Walking in the truth accompanies with it the fleeing from sin. I don't make uh, deep friendships with those who have set themselves up against the Lord, is what he says. Good company corrupts, or bad company corrupts good morals, right? But these are folks who have set themselves up against God's anointed. David says, I stay away from them. And they're also, they hate, they hate the truth. Jesus talks about this all through the Gospels, how they hated me and they're going to hate you. David is of the truth, not sinless, but he's of the Lord. He's the Lord's anointed. And those who have set themselves against the Lord's truth hate the Lord's anointed. And he is proclaiming that he does not walk in their ways. Not because he is perfect, saints. This is all grounded in the steadfast love of the Lord. That's why he keeps it ever before his eyes. That's why he asks to always be proved and tested. Know that I'm capable of much sin. I'm capable than greater sin than these guys. But your steadfast love is before my eyes, and so I avoid the way of the wicked. Now, we know David wasn't sinless. We can go through the countless examples of sins and just great failures in his life. And what is the difference between the wicked and that? What's the wicked? What's the difference between the wicked and that in David's life? The steadfast love of the Lord, that the wick, that the righteous may fall, but they get back up. That is a trust that is unwavering. That's a, not a trust that doesn't say, Lord, help my unbelief. It's not a trust that says I'm sinless. It's a trust that says I depend on your steadfast love when I'm doing well. I depend on your steadfast love when I fall into great sin. That is the difference. And that is the, what's underneath this prayer of, of David. And so David goes on to say that he washes his hands in innocence and he goes around the altar. This is not, this is really referring to if I'm coming to give a sacrifice and he's asking the Lord to vindicate him, what he's saying is, Lord, I'm, I think I'm innocent in the matter. I think I'm innocent in the matter. And so I come to you and ask for you to vindicate me. But he's then given a, a sacrifice of thanksgiving to the Lord because all of his wondrous deeds. You see this in the text. I wash my hands in innocence, verse 6, and I go around your altar, O Lord, proclaiming thanksgiving aloud, telling of your wondrous deed. I love the habitation of your house, the place where your glory dwells. I hope all of that about the Lord's steadfast love helps you see how David would walk in to the holy house of the Lord, the great judge of all the earth, and cry out, not with tears of, of just being scared, but with Cries and tears and shouts of thanksgiving is what we see here. This is all still under worship versus wickedness. See, for those of us who have the steadfast love of the Lord before us, this is a joyful thing that we come to the Lord's house and we think about all of his goodness in our life. 
how he either saved us from the gutter or he clicked us out of the gutter and has held us in his hands and he will hold us in his hands for the rest of our days that we might behold his steadfast love, that we might walk according to his stability, his faithfulness and his truth, not be tossed to and fro because we're following our stability and our truth and and our desires. Due to God's loving kindness, David loves the Lord and he loves his presence. See, a part of the fall is that God had to be separated from us. And all of redemption, the Bible tells a story about how God is represencing himself with us. And here is David, a great sinner, the steadfast love of the Lord before him, saying, I love your presence. I love the inhabitation of your house where you have made your glory to dwell. And we all know inside that tabernacle, inside that temple, every jot and tittle about what it's made out of, about what it contains, about the processes, about the sacrificial system, the high priest, the worship, it all screams Jesus. It all screams the seed that is coming to crush the serpent's head. And so I love the inhabitation of your house where your glory dwells. And we know from the New Testament that how does God get glory? Well, he seeks the glory of the son who came to crush your sin, who came to crush the serpent, who came to make his presence with us permanent. So I love the inhabitation of your house where your glory dwells. Some of us, because we still have that mindset of, are we doing enough? We don't say words like that to the Lord. We're a little bit fearful because we're like, I don't mean that. I know my sin. I don't love the Lord like it seems like David does. You do. You do, and you don't have to listen to the lies of Satan. You love the Lord. You do, saints. And it is good to be able to say that. I love the Lord, and I still have a lot of unbelief. I love the Lord, and I still have a lot of the love of the world in me. But there's coming a day. This old dead body that loves the world, it's going in the ground. It won't get back up the same. It's going to get back up changed. And that's what we got to look forward to. So for now, we say, I love the habitation where God's glory dwells, where he's going to remind me till the day that we all bury each other. He is enough. And we love the Lord. I think I'm going to be done with that section and move on to 9 through 12. Verses 9 through 12. This acquittal, this redemption that David speaks of. Maybe you're thinking as we go through this, I don't know, I feel like David might be, uh, he might think that he's more righteous than, than, than he is. Well, this next verse will probably uh, kill that thought in your mind. So he asked the Lord, don't sweep my soul away with sinners. Don't sweep my soul away with sin-. He knows he's sinful, saints, brothers and sisters. Friends, he knows he's He's sinful, but the steadfast love of the Lord is before him, and he knows he's one that forgives. So he just says, Lord, don't don't sweep me away with the sinners, with the bloodthirsty man, with those who uh, have evil, with those whose hands are full of bribes. Instead of of that, I'm going to walk in my integrity. In order to be forgiven, that's not what he says. 
right after saying, don't sweep me away. I'm going to walk in my integrity. He says, redeem me and be gracious to me, God. Because if he is going to walk in his integrity, who's going to give him the ability to do that? Who is going to give him the ability to actually do that? He knows where his help comes from. Help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. So he looks to the hills and says, Lord, I'm going to walk in my integrity. I'm going to pursue holiness, but I need you to redeem me. I need you to be gracious to me if this is actually going to go well. And here's his hope. Here's his hope. Not only redemption that's going to motivate his pursuit of holiness, but it's that this, my foot stands on level ground. My foot stands on level ground. We still read that and we're saying, well, you got to be able to know how to stand and where to stand and how to place your feet. You know, we're all back on us again. How in the world we who are born trusting in the shifting sand, building houses, building beautiful houses on the shifting sand, how in the world do we get put on level ground? How did this happen? The steadfast love of the Lord, the God who never changes, the God who redeems, the God who is gracious, put us on level ground. Why is David crying out to the Lord? Because the Lord cried out to him and promised him a kingdom. I will give you a kingdom. So what is David like? Bet, be gracious to me and redeem me. You said you would, I'm dependent on it. So I'm going to pursue holiness knowing that I walk in your stability, not my own. My foot stands on level ground. We read that and we say, my foot stands on level ground. No, 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 no. My foot stands on level ground. It will not change. It will not crumble. Jesus at the end of the Sermon on the Mount says that the, the, the person who hears these words and builds his house on the rock. Well, at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, we're all hopeless because we can't even get past don't be anxious much less walk in holiness. We're, we're in this life trying not to be anxious. And the Lord says, now, if you listen to my words, you build your house on a rock. Well, who is the rock? It's that the Lord is saying, listen, I am your righteousness. And in me, you are on the solid rock. And that right there is what leads to, hey, I'm going to make all my requests known to the Lord. I know I, I'm anxious about today. I know I'm anxious about what I wear but I've been placed on the solid ground. And so I'm going to take it off my worry list and I'm going to put it on my prayer list. And so I'm going to seek to remember that he feeds the birds today. I'm going to seek to remember that though I'm suffering and though that people slander me and though things are hard and I have temptations and trials on every side, I know that it's the, those who mourn that inherit the earth. I know that it is through cross this life, not glory that the Lord is sanctifying me and purifying me. Count it joy when we meet trials of various kinds. Why? Because he is using that to build steadfastness in us. So I will conclude the comments on the psalm, and I want to summarize Psalm 26 for us real quick. It is with God's grace in God's steadfast love before his eyes that David asked to be vindicated. And this determination we see in this prayer is not a moralistic, self-generated effort. 
David is not boasting in his own holiness. He is agreeing with the Lord. And he asks for redemption. Why? Because God has revealed himself as a redeemer to his people. And so God's judgments against the unholy do not sweep my soul away with sinners. That will happen. God will judge. God's judgment against the unholy should keep any of us from boasting in our own pursuits of righteousness. David knows that he needs and has received and will continue to receive redemption because of God's grace. And so David stands on level ground no matter what. That's Psalms, Psalm 26. And so for the rest of our time today, I want to apply Psalm 26. I want to reflect on it as we close. Now, when I say apply, I mean, how should saints understand Psalm 26? That's what I mean by apply. Because as we understand God's word, it leads us to live. It leads us to life. And so as you know, that I have fallen in love with in the Psalms, because of this, Jesus is the singer of the Psalms. Jesus is the singer of the Psalms. And so how would our Lord sing Psalm 26? How would he sing Psalm 26? Well, truly, these words are pointing to a greater David. Truly one who says, I walked in my integrity. I had trusted without wavering. Who uh, always meditated on the law day and night. Kept the steadfast love of the Lord before his eyes. Walked in his faithfulness. Always hated evil. Could wash his hands in innocence. Always proclaiming thanksgivings aloud. Always loving the house of the Lord. who has walked in his integrity and who has always obeyed and who has always worshiped God. Who has done that? Well, we, we know that it's not David himself who's done that perfectly. But the Lord Jesus, when he came to earth, was perfected through suffering and he did these things perfectly. David pursued righteousness in light of God's mercy and redemption to him But Jesus sings this psalm as the one who walked in his integrity and trusted the Lord without waving in order to redeem. David did this because of redemption. The Lord did this to redeem is the point here. David was heard because God's covenant promised to him to redeem and build an everlasting kingdom for David. Christ, the Son of God, his prayers were heard because not that he needed redemption, but because he was perfectly reverent. Christ perfectly trusted and obeyed the Father. John 4, in verse 34, Jesus says to them, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. John 6, later, Jesus says in verse 38, For I've come down from heaven, hallelujah, not to do my own will, but to do the will of him who sent me. The will of the Father was that the Son of God would put on flesh and redeem you. And he did not fail. Christ is the one who never, ever, ever wavered in his worship. David ends this song, in the house of the Lord, I will bless your holy name. I will bless your holy name. Isn't it our problem that we've received from Adam the fact that we don't worship God? We went from loving and worshiping 
the Lord Jesus and loving one or worshiping God and loving one another to only caring about self. The, our worship problem didn't change. We all still worship. Problem is we left the worship of God for the worship of self, the worship of the world, where Satan has been our father. And they control the principalities of the air and they've influenced us. Worship has never been our problem. Our problem is we don't bless the Lord. That was never Jesus' problem. That was never, ever Jesus' problem. He put on our stinking flesh without sin and he always worshiped the Lord. He never, ever failed at the first commandment, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. He never wavered in his worship and his integrity, and he had no need to ask for mercy. He had no need to ask for mercy. He had no need to say, Lord, do not sweep my soul away with sinners. But saints, listen clearly. He was swept away like a sinner. He who knew no sin became sin so that you and I would become the righteousness of God. He put on our sin and was swept away in the wrath of God. He emptied the cup of God's wrath that we deserve, was swept away to the grave. Penalty for our sin. But he didn't stay there. He didn't stay there, saints. He got up with a glorious resurrection body. And then he ascended to heaven. That's what you have to look forward to. So when you go into that grave, you don't stay there. You're going to resurrect change. And you're going to see this Savior, the Savior who put on flesh and never wavered in every way that we waver. We're going to see him with our very eyes. And you're not going to have fear in your hearts whether you did enough. You're not going to have fear in your hearts full of shame, and full of guilt. You're going to fully know that he's the only righteousness you got. You're going to love him completely and fully. And you're going to know his love for you fully. Amen. The Lord Jesus perfectly obeyed and he trusted the Father to the point of death. To the point of death. Our brother Peter, he says in his epistle, in light of the suffering that we even see David going through, the enemies of God's people slandering him because they hate God, they hate his truth, they hate David. They hated our Lord Jesus, they're going to hate us. They're going to hate the truth. In 1 Peter chapter 2, starting in verse 21, Peter says, For this you've been called. Because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. Even in this psalm, we don't see David re uh, returning the slander. He takes his pleas and his complaints to the Lord. Well, so did the greater David, who had a reason to complain because he was perfect. Nonetheless, he did not revile in return. And when he suffered, he did not threaten. He continued entrusting himself to the judge who judges justly. 
He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. For we were straying like sheep, but now we've returned to the shepherd and the overseer of our souls. This is what life will look like even for us. We don't have, at least this point in in American history, that many people reviling us for worshiping the Lord without getting too political. Nonetheless, we do have the kingdom of darkness that whose fiery darts shoot at us all the time. Shame and guilt. And the thing is, is the things that come at us, they're true. Satan has ammo. We are unrighteous. We are still wicked. We are still sinners. And it bogs us down. What do we hope on to? He bore our sins. He bore our sins. I don't give an account for my sins anymore. They've been taken away. All of God's judgment has been taken. There is no judgment for those who are in Christ Jesus. There's only a resurrection and a life. And so because of that, because by faith you're holy, because by faith you are going to be sanctified. You're being sanctified now. He's going to bring that to completion in glory. Because you have the hope of heaven by faith. We want to consciously pursue holiness. So if kind of point one of the application was that Jesus is the singer of the Psalms, point two is that we consciously pursue holiness. I I use the word consciously for the purpose of what the word means, that we consciously do it. We don't do it by accident. The Lord is working in us. And he is doing his work. And we don't know all the good works that are being worked out in our life. That still is of faith. Yet we consciously pursue holiness. Looking back at Psalm 26, let me do a brief exercise. Let's start in verse 1. Verse 1 begins with trusting in the Lord. How could anybody even do that if there wasn't a redeemer to trust in? Prove me, try me, test my heart, my mind. The one who knows all the secrets, he wants to continue to purify us. So his sanctifying work is in view there. His steadfast love, verse 3. His stability, his truth, verse 3. His law shows us what's wrong, and so we don't have bad company and live in wickedness, but we actually worship because we have things to be thankful for, namely his redemption. Namely, his altar that shows us a substitutionary atonement, which we now know is the Lord Jesus himself. Telling of his wondrous deeds of redemption, of salvation. The Lord has represents himself with us, verse 8, where his glory dwells. We were separated from it, now we can come to it. Verse 9, forgiveness, not being swept away with sinners. Verse 11, redemption and grace. Verse 12, a level ground and in the great assembly of blessing the Lord. Do you see how grounded? Now, we can go do the same exercise and I can tell you all of what David pursued consciously and we'll do that. But I want you to see, again, this is all grounded in who God is as a redeemer and a sanctifier and a glorifier of his people. So everything I'm about to say is because of this. So we pursue holiness. And holiness is only pursued by those who've been brought from death to life. We now have life. Let's live. Let's live. The Lord has told us how to live. But here's the way we think about this. 
You know, we went to GRN this past week and had a, had a blast. It was great fellowship, great time of worship, lots of good stuff. And our brother shared this illustration. And he's like, you know, the holidays are coming up. It's the season of gift giving. At least that's what we call it, gift giving. Brother like, ah, oh, I know brother so-and-so, sister so-and-so is going to get me a gift. I need to get them a gift. That's a transaction. That is a transaction. When we think, oh, they're going to get me a gift. I need to get them a gift. The Lord has given us a gift that we cannot pay him back for. And that gift is the reason that we're going to walk in newness of life. Enjoy that gift. Enjoy that gift. And I'm about to explain how we enjoy the gift of redemption that the Lord has given us. I think we see in this text David's conscious pursuit of holiness. And so as we enjoy the gift of the Lord, the gospel, how he has justified us. This is what I think we can take away. Number one, a contemplative life on the love of God. A contemplative life on the love. The love, the steadfast love of the Lord is always before my eyes. And so how do we do this? Well, number one, we show up to church. This is the Lord's day where he's promised to give you everything you need. He's promised to remind you that he's yours, that he's for you, that he's justified you, that he is working in your life and he is sanctifying you and that he will glorify you. He does this week after week after week through the word and through the sacraments. And so we show up and we have that given to us, the steadfast love of the Lord before us. Then we spend the rest of our weeks contemplating that. What has the Lord, there's been more said from the welcome and to the benediction, then there probably is time to actually think about. So we take what the Lord has given us and fed us on the Lord's day and use that throughout our life. Talk about that with one another. Contemplate that. Meditate upon what do you feel that the Lord feels about you? When you go back and read about what we confessed about justification, what does that mean about the Father's heart for you? You spend five minutes thinking about that, and it'll do you some good. I'm not saying it's going to make you feel better, and you're going to be just, just live a just impeccable life. I'm just saying it'll be good for you to remember, man, the Lord loves you, and that's why he's justified you. Uh, and you can enjoy that gift. So that's, that's number one, right? We trust him. We show up to church. We receive his means of grace, and we spend the week contemplating the steadfast love of the Lord. So I think that's, a, that's one thing we see in pursuing holiness because of the gift we've been given. Walking in your faithfulness, David says. I walk in your stability. We got no stability. We trust in ourselves and we end up all over the place. The Lord brings us back to the truth every Lord's day and we seek to contemplate that throughout the week. Number two, in our pursuit of holiness, we want to have, we want to be conscious of the company that we keep. I think David is very, Psalm 1 is very adamant, but this is also, I do not sit with the men of falsehood Consort with the hypocrites. Hate the assembly of evildoers. Do not sit with the wicked. Connecting that with someone and walking with those who are wicked. We all, you know, maybe not so much me at this point in my life, but we've all at, at some point, and most of you go to work and you work with unbelievers. And so does that mean that you have to make sure they know that you hate them? That's not the point. I think it, it's knowing that you want a place to call home. Who are those people? Who are the people that you're going to say, this is home? They're in this room. The Lord has connected you from a life of selfishness, from a life connected to the gutter in the world, and brought you into the body of Christ. 
and he tells us how to live together. And because of his righteousness, we're patient with one another. We're long-suffering with one another, merciful to one another, humble with one another. That doesn't mean you're going to have best friends with every single person in this room. That is not the point. But I think when we then go back to think about, okay, the non-believers that we, we work with, well, how do we want to live toward those people? Merciful, gentle, and loving. We want to invite them in to see that the Lord is good. And it's real hard, saints, to keep fighting against the grain when you go to a place of work where, where people don't care about the Lord. It's hard. It's tough. It weighs you down. I've had multiple conversations with folks in the last couple of weeks just talking about how difficult that is. But we have a place to call home. We have a place to get filled up. And then we go and we seek to live wisely in the world, not joining them, right? We live with them. We don't join them in the wicked ways of the world. We seek to love them and invite them in to taste and see that the Lord is good. And again, this is a part of new life in Christ and our pursuit of holiness because of the gift that we've been given. And then number three, I think living a truthful life and fleeing from sin. We see this in Psalm 26. An obvious agreeing with God's word. If the Lord says it's bad, let's run from it. If the Lord says it's good, we seek to pursue it. Because he probably knows best the way in which we should live our lives. And so we're just seeking to go with the grain of creation and what the Lord has said is good. So because of all that we've said about the Lord's goodness to us, being a redeemer and being gracious, we pursue holiness. I think it's a contemplative life on the redemption and the steadfast love of the Lord. It's conscious of the company we keep, and we seek to flee from sin and pursue what's good. We all want to do that, right? And it's all like, amen, may it be. Amen. So, closing meditation for us. As I thought about sort of that gift analogy and what we've received and how it is what the Lord has done for us that gives us a new identity. Because of that new identity, we live accordingly. Remembering that it's not that we're sinless, it's that we know we need grace, that we know we need mercy. I thought about 1 John. thought about another way in which we go to the scriptures and we sometimes scare ourselves into holiness. And 1 John has been used as a, you know, a, a test for this, a test for that, a test for this. And it has scared most of us in, in our life. And so I would make a plug for the a couple years ago, we went through 1 John. Justin taught through 1 John. So if you have time, that's a good one to listen to this week or this month. But 1 John, in chapter 3, i read a couple of these for us to maybe tie all this together in a, hopefully a helpful way. John 3, in verse, verses 2 and 3, it says, Beloved, you are God's children now. Amen. You are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. Now verse 6 says that no one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. And verse 9 says no one born of God makes a practice of sinning. For God's seed abides in him and he cannot keep on sinning because he's been born of God. without having to really caveat all the things about what it means to make a practice of sinning. 
Does it say sinless? No, it says, I know I'm a sinner and I keep going to God for mercy. That is what it means to not make a practice of sinning. I know I'm in need of mercy. I know I'm in need of mercy. I know this is wrong. And then verse 23 says that this is the commandment. Remember, the Father sent Christ to not only do the will of, to do his will, but to bring his words. He brought God's commandments. And what is that commandment? Verse 23 says, this is his commandment, that we believe in the name of his son, Jesus, and we love one another, just as he commanded us. Believe in the name of his son, and we love one another. Saints, we were children of darkness. We were slaves of our own selfish desire. We were trapped in a nature that sought after its own pleasure and its own desire. This doesn't mean that we were in the world doing the worst things we could possibly do. It means that we were separated from God. We were children of the devil and we were without hope. We were without hope, but now we have hope. Somebody say amen. Now we have hope. And verse three that I read says that in everyone who thus hopes in him, well, how do we hope in him? We are God's children now. What we have, what, what will be has not yet appeared, but when it does appear, we're going to be like him. When it does appear, when he appears, we're going to be like him. We thus hope in the Lord. That is how we thus hope. When he appears, we're going to be like him when we keep looking for that day. So we who hope in him, we purify ourselves as he is pure. This means that because we're his and because he's ours, we're not going to make it a practice of sinning, of avoiding sin, acting like it doesn't exist. We're going to confess it. And we're going to seek, Lord, I want to trust in you without wavering. Help me walk in integrity. Help me keep the steadfast love of the Lord before you. Help me run from wickedness. Lord, help me depend on your grace because I know that I'm standing on solid ground. And one day, it won't just be a Sabbath day out of seven. It's going to be a Sabbath rest for eternity. So let's keep his commandment to trust in the Lord and love one another. We believe in the name of Jesus Christ, and we love one another. And let me, just, let me just end with the fact that Hebrews says that no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him who's going to judge and who knows all secrets. But guess what? We have a great high priest who passed through the heavens. We have a great high priest who, who passed through the heavens. So as we pray, we remember that the Lord Jesus prays with us. Our prayers are never alone. Let's, let's go to the Lord in prayer.